Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hey there, it's Laura. Today I'm talking with Christoph Carter, or Casey, as most people call him, including me. Casey is a master level executive coach, a serious meditator and meditation teacher, host of This Epic Life podcast, and author of the forthcoming book, Permission to Glow, a spiritual guide to epic leadership, which will be released this October and is available for pre-order now. Casey is also my personal coach and one of the most enigmatic, energetic, intuitive, and fun people I know. As a fellow Enneagram 7 seeker type, he's got a unique ability to call me on my bullshit, but more importantly, he's truly helped me and so many others work through the big blocks that get us stuck, burn us out, and keep us from, as he says, achieving our big honkin' dream. Some of Casey's clients include musician Ani DeFranco, artist Lisa Congdon, Fortune 100 CEOs, and American author and meditation teacher Susan Piper. In this conversation, we cover a lot of ground. Casey shares the personal backstory of hitting the walls of his ambition and desire to run from pain, getting sober, serendipity, finding a guru, what meditation means to him, becoming a coach, and the four permissions covered in his book, which are the culmination of all his personal and professional experience to date. I just can't say enough good things about Casey. I think you'll find this conversation fun, helpful, and inspiring. Enjoy. Hi, Casey. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the other side of the question answer booth. Yeah, it's trippy and amazing all at once. I say that because you are on my team. You're my coach. I always say you're my business coach, but it doesn't really qualify. I'm like, is he like my spiritual mentor? Is yeah. he my business? Is he my therapist? No, you're definitely not my therapist. That's a, that's a whole other job, but. I'm so excited to have you on because we get to talk about you yeah. and the things you're creating in your new book. Oh, gosh. I'm so excited about it. And I think like you calling me your coach is like me calling Laura McCowan my client. You're, you're such a force of nature. And to, to kind of witness the evolution of the podcast from the other side of the curtain as you were getting ready to put it out there to be to be yeah. on it now it truly is kind of surreal but what what I love about these conversations with clients is we get to share some of our process together and so people mm-hmm. could gain a grand, greater understanding of what is coaching and how does it work and why why mm-hmm. why do I invest so much in coaching with my coach and my team of coaches yeah, yeah totally and we're going to get into that because I was definitely one of those coaching skeptics. I'm like, please, sure. everybody's a coach. What is a coach? Who needs a coach? Yeah. So 
we'll get into that. But first, okay. So I want to start by talking about how <laughs> how you came to be this person. Yeah. And maybe take us through the beginning parts of your your career, your work. Yeah. Well, I, I what I hear in that question is what is the career path of becoming a spiritual teacher at the intersection of consciousness and business? It's weird. I, <laughs> it, it definitely wasn't my major in college. Um, no, I know. Yeah, I know. There, there wasn't like a, a prep program for it, but I'm from the Midwest. I live in Akron, Ohio, Northeast Ohio. And it's one of these parts of the country that's really like an underdog story. Like people write us off as the Rust Belt or this like post-industrial wasteland. And I, I think that there is such a kind of a spiritual beauty to, to being from here because people don't expect so much from us. I, I live in the birthplace of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is interesting. The, uh, the founder, uh, Bob Smith, Dr. Bob, is buried about a mile from my home. And um, I, I think my formative kind of path was about growing up as a latchkey kid in, you know, middle of nowhere, suburbia, Ohio. And because I didn't have a lot of parental oversight, I got into a lot of trouble as a kid and and was always kind of a seeker. You know, it set me on a path of, of being a seeker. And if I had to summarize it, all of it is that, you know, I got so hardcore into personal development to make stuff happen in my life. And where the personal development path ended, the spiritual path kind of began. And so that's kind of led me to Okay, doing so this stop yeah. for a second. Hold on. Because yeah. I want to know what that means. So where the personal development path ends, like what does that actually mean? What was going on? Yeah. So I was, uh, <laughs> I, I think back to my early career in, in entertainment. So after I graduated college, we lived in uh, Hollywood and I worked at a movie studio. And this was at the advent and the dawn of Napster. Do you remember what Napster is? Oh my, of course. I, I worked for a startup because that was like 2000, no, that was 99 2000, yeah. 2001, that's right. that era. And they had to give us a period. You know how your parents like used to say, you can play Nintendo for three hours from six to nine. It was like they had to tell the employees, you can do Napster off hours from like six to 9 p.m. if you're in the building. Otherwise, you can't do it because it clogged up all the internet because we would download so much music. Yeah, totally. And and this was before <laughs> BitTorrents even. Like, like Napster was old school and there were so many viruses. It was nasty. But one of the things I got obsessed with downloading was, was uh, personal development audio tapes. You know, like I grew up, like most of us in the 80s, seeing infomercials for Tony Robbins or whoever. And I would download all of his programs, load them onto my phone and just absorb absorb or tried to absorb this like rah-rah accomplishment personal development stuff. And it was it was cool, you know, but it was also that was the, the formation of it was that I, I, I share some addictive tendencies and I, I don't I have two speeds. And this might be an Enneagram seven thing because I coach other sevens yeah, like us. Which uh, we like both us. are. Yes. We both are. And sevens don't really have the moderation gene. We are like either all off or all on. You know, like I have, I have two, two speeds, like off and completely epic. So rather than dabbling in the personal <laughs> development thing, I, I like immersed myself, you know, and I couldn't get enough. Yep. So that, that was like the start of my personal development journey. So why did personal development end? Yeah. Like, what do you mean where that ended spirituality? Well, began? I think I was becoming dis increasingly dissatisfied with the experience of just accomplishing more, like accomplishing more was great. And it, and that 
was happening that that masculine approach of like doing setting it up knocking it down like that was starting to happen yep. but I, I wasn't finding the meaning and the fulfillment and so and, and what I started okay. noticing like the the threads and all and a lot of this personal development work was leading back to meditation to consider some sort of stilling hmm. practice and and I just started you know, paying attention over many, many years to finally realize like, oh, I should probably meditate. So you're up in your 20s at this point and you're working in Hollywood? Yeah, I was working in Hollywood. We started, um, we had our first kid out there. This was about 2004. I was kind of a mess at that stage. Like nobody gives you a manual on how to be married when you're in your early 20s, you know? So like I was no. I was sleeping on the floor of recording studios and my wife would be drinking with our neighbors because I was never home. And then, you know, we have a kid and and we started growing up a lot to to support this child and you know it just it just became apparent that we wanted to be closer to a family level of support by that point i was starting to get a lot more honest with myself and with her about who i was hoping to become like I, nowhere near close but like who who i wanted to eventually evolve into which was i think somebody a little bit more dependable a little bit more present a little bit more honest okay so when you say I was starting to get more honest with her, when you say her, you're talking about your wife, yeah. still your wife. What had you communicated before? Or were you just kind of trucking along like yeah. people in their early 20s do? And you realized this is like not working out the way I I think it is, or I'm headed for a bad place. Yeah, I well, I had a, a health reckoning uh, when I was 26 before we left LA. I had kind of a stress-induced, what they thought was an aneurysm. It looked really serious. Oh, shit. Yeah, and when I went in for the spinal tap and the mandatory CT scan, it was the anesthetic for those procedures that almost killed me, and my wife was present for that. Oh. Like, my all of my vitals just dropped dangerously low, and she was, you know, literally waiting for me to breathe in between these breaths. So coming out of that, I realized I kind of had the reckoning of, like, you know, by the way, sweetheart, I've been miserable for a long time. I hate my career. I hate myself most days. I, I'm addicted to marijuana. I'm stoned in gridlock traffic all day long. I'm stoned at my desk. Porn. I mean, it, I was just, I was kind of a disaster. Like I said, I didn't have any real manual on how to do this. I mean, I don't know a lot of these things because our conversations tend to be Well, about I, me. I don't put this um, on my coaching enrollment page, Laura. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Maybe I should. Okay, that's a big deal. I just want to dig into the sure, like, emotional yeah. part of this. So, was this news to her? <laughs> yeah, she, I mean, she looked at me as if she didn't know who she was living with, you know. And I mean, and she's a highly mm. intuitive woman. She's also now a coach in my practice, and she she knows what's going on mm -hmm. before I open my mouth on some levels. But I think it was really reassuring to her that. I was willing to cop to a lot of it and receive her support. You know, I think that's what's kept us married 22 years now. I give Gail so much incredible credit for her inexhaustible patience with me and love to, to see me through the other side of that. Because, of course, I have so much shame. Like, even saying those words now, like, it brings up the shame of, you know, the same way when hmm. I was 26. But what I've come to recognize about it now, the timing was really auspicious because we, we lived in Los Angeles and 
now when I go back to Los Angeles, it feels more like almost like a spiritual pilgrimage to me. Whereas when I was there, I was mm-hmm. blind to all of it. I was so disconnected and kind of miserable and just, you know, a victim of the traffic and the Hollywood flakiness and all this other crap that I hated. And now when I go back, it feels like the epicenter of my spiritual life. And so I, so I think I needed that yeah. health reckoning there to kind of come back full circle to it. You're guru is like there's a major presence there correct right yeah paramahansa yogananda wrote autobiography of a yogi in southern california the the worldwide organization is headquartered in los angeles like literally you know a mile from where my apartment was he also left his body there in 1952 next to the to to the practice space where my band practiced so now when i walk these you know when i kind of reconcile my past and i'm standing on a block in los angeles i'm like yogananda left his body on that block and my band used to practice when i was high all the time on that block you know on that corner and it's just uh yeah you know so it was it was kind of the guru sprinkling these seeds throughout my life And, and if i do trace them back it, it goes all the way back to when I was three years old looking at the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band because his face and three other of the lineage of gurus is on the cover of that album. And I've been, look, I've been looking at those faces since I was three. Get out. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I know. And you, you remember that? I totally remember it. I remember... Like you I, remember? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was one of many of those breadcrumbs that the guru was kind of nudging me towards the path. And even in my most disconnected, self-loathing place in Los Angeles, I was within blocks, if not a corner away from the path. So I was on the path. I was just going through the miserable desert of it. That's right. Yeah. Well, that is part of the path for sure. Sadly. (laughs) Okay. Sadly, unfortunately, frustratingly, yes. So what happens after that? What happens after you say like, all right, Hey, babe. Yeah, yeah. This is. This <laughs> I'm not the man I want to be. <laughs> well, we 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 had we had our first kid, and then it became you know really obvious that we should you know head back to the Midwest, and I, I really surrendered into clocking into the corporate phase of my career, you know, providing for the family, figuring out how to make money, you know, back before pandemics, you know, like open the door to all of us working from home, you know, I, I got a job with a startup company out of Chicago and we were moving back to Ohio and I was able to work, you know, where I wanted to uh, live, where I wanted to in Ohio, but make this great salary and also start learning about company culture, team dynamics, start coaching executives. And it was just this most... And, um, and that became Got a career, career for about nine years. So what did you think, did you have some idea of where you were headed or were you, what, what was your thought on your career at that point? Another version of the miserable tension of knowing that I'm here for a bigger purpose and that I'm passing through here for some other reason unbeknownst to me. So I was resistant as hell, you know, like I would... I would get my sales job done in the first few hours of the day, and then I would spend the vast majority of my time working on the people in the company. Because like, that's where my passion has always been, is in people, unlocking potential, motivation. And I didn't even before I was certified and trained to do this work, I, I had that mindset to do it. But that part of me that had to use sales to pay the bills was always kind of miserable and unfulfilled. You know? and, that's, and that was kind of the height of my drinking career, I would say. Oh, okay. Yeah, we haven't even touched on that. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're (laughs) a salesperson, you have 
pretty much an unlimited spending line, you know, for entertaining clients. Uh, and we had no limits on that stuff. And then, you know, being a dad, also being a musician, being a salesperson, you literally have re- good reasons to drink just about every night of the week if you want them. And how and when did that come to an end? So this was, you know, early on, let's see, I, I finally quit in 2012. I started having the conversation with myself in probably 2008, 2009. Th- this company was a very young, work hard, party hard company. I mean, it wasn't unusual to like mm-hmm. walk into the lobby of the office and find somebody doing a keg stand or somebody like blackout drunk up on the roof singing karaoke or it was just a very hey i worked there yeah i think we we all did if we were lucky it was a great environment and it was fun and i'm not knocking it but it was not sustainable for for people's well-being i don't think and and i and i get it that we all needed to medicate on some level just to ride the emotional highs and lows of sales and clients and the pressure cooker of media like i could see it all very clearly now but i i knew i was kind i knew that it had to have an end date for me yep hear that (laughs) yeah uh and did you so did you leave there or did you well i i stayed there i stayed and like it was kind of a radical notion to be like a young media salesperson dude and to be sober. So like I started making the declaration early to prepare people for it. Cause I was, I was approaching the point of being really serious. Like I, I knew just based on my genetics and my family that if I didn't quit consciously in my thirties, I would absolutely need rehab in my forties. You know, yep. but by this point I was, you know, meditating more and more and more. And, and that meditation practice really took root. And as meditation practice takes root, it strengthens your discernment. And what I think discernment is, is like in the serenity prayer that's used in, you know, recovery, the wisdom to know the difference. Does this serve me? Does it not? You know, and alcohol was at the top <laughs> of the list of what does not serve me. So I started have to, having to figure out, like, can I party it just as hard and have just as much, if not more fun, while being sober? And ever since then, you know, now going on 10 years of sobriety, it's like it's been like trying to prove that out, that it's possible. Damn. So I'm amazed that you started meditating while you were still drinking. That, yeah. to me, blows my mind. Can you just talk about meditating at the yeah. same time that you're drinking? Like, okay. How yeah. Does that work? Yeah. So I was drinking a fair amount and my first real attempts at meditating, I would lay in Shavasana, like corpse pose at the end of yoga. Cause I thought, Oh, that's meditation, right? Like lay on your back and then fall asleep on your basement floor. You know, <laughs> like there was no real meditative benefit to it <laughs> other than maybe a, a nice nap. So I was really unconsciously incompetent when it came to that. And what I started noticing was like, <laughs> while I was living there, I was also listening to the Tony Robbins and starting to run and, and developing my running practice. So at first, m- running became my meditation. And then I would start getting on the trains yeah. on the red line in Chicago and start in practicing the basic tools of meditation of just dropping my thoughts. And you know, now I'm grateful for having developed my practice on a crowded, loud bus where people are bumping into you and ripping your earphones out of your ears. Because like, I I think I could honestly now meditate through anything because of that formative experience. Like that was clearly God's plan for me to figure it out in the most resistant environments. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Yeah. But like, but, but again, at that time, you know, even, you know, moving to Ohio, noticing my drinking that I would have to consciously stop. I mean, I remember training for a marathon 
while I was probably high. Like I, I'd smoke weed and go out for a nine mile run. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I didn't have any boundaries between, you know, these, these things that were trying to serve me, you know, like I was not giving any of them their due reverence or respect. So, I mean, and the reason I point this out is that, you know, people kind of know me now as my, my brand of 10 years of sobriety and a lot of meditation and teaching meditation, but it literally, it it was this seed that I had to be willing to water over many, many, many years. Yeah. That's, it's really good to point out. Okay. So take me to where you, you transition into being a coach. Yeah. So 2012, I, I still had, you know, a few more years left of my, my corporate career working for other people. So I was still a very uncomfortable, dissatisfied salesperson. And one of our offsite retreats for the Good Life Project, you know, there was, there was a lot of incredible coaches in this program. Uh, I could think of two offhand, Karen Wright, who's probably my biggest mentor as a coach. She's one of the biggest, most established executive coaches in Canada. She was in the same program with me as a participant. Huh. And Cynthia Morris, who's been my writing coach forever. And so these were two like no bullshit, highly trained, powerful women. And for for better or for worse, I'm way more likely to listen to, to women than I am to dudes in, in that space. And because because they're like my wife Gail. They're yep. they're like you. They'll they'll tell you how it is and they don't mince words. And and so I really respected yeah. them and, and they were adamant that I have professional training, but they were also I was so ready to quit my career. And I was like, I was like that fool you mentioned earlier. Like, I'm a life coach. I'm going to be a life coach now. I'm going to tell people how to live, bro. It's such, it's such a preposterous notion. You know, who am I to show anybody how to live? They, they both like gave me the smackdown. They're like, you have no clients. You have no track record. You have no training. You have no network. Shall I continue? You have three children. You have the, like, like they, they laid it out, not in, in front of all of my peers in the program, right? And I remember just being seething pissed yeah. off about this, like seething with rage. I was like six months or like maybe four months sober. But I was like, how fucking dare you call in front of my colleagues? You know, I was to call me <laughs> yeah. on that bullshit. Oh, so this was in your training. In the, in the Good Life Project. Tell, yeah. Can you share what training you did? Yeah, it was the Good Life Project. Oh, that immersion. was the Good Life Project It was the immersion training. program. Yeah. <sighs> Okay, that's awesome. And so then what did you do? Well, you pouted for a while. Yeah, I pouted. I was pissed off. I basically had to do what I coach so many of my executive leaders now on, which is I had to build the bridge from where I was. I couldn't build this bridge from someplace that didn't exist, right? So I had to lean further into my meditation practice. I had to get more honest with what I wanted to build, including honest with my employers. Like, listen, I've been sending out this personal development thing, this special times for years now. It's who I am. I'm in charge of (laughs) four salespeople right now. I was responsible for a $7 million sales goal. I'm like, what could I drive if I took over the training and development or motivation of like a 110 person sales force? And I started making that business case. Mm. It was incredible. Mm. And I would say like the, the months between that reckoning of me being pissed off in the front of the room and three or four months later in that November, when I, you know, took on my new role as a leader in training and development, it was truly a transformation had taken place. And now I was making a, a great living to, to do what I'm here to do. And, and then I had, you know, maybe three more years at the company to build out, build out that bridge into being a professional coach that would go out on his own. 
end of 15, my, my position was eliminated. But for those last three years I was there between, you know, this is maybe the beginning of 13 and the end of 15, I designed and delivered tons of training programs, tons of coaching to fellow executives yeah. and other leaders and, and started the, the foundation of my training, but I didn't get formally trained until I was out on my own. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of the podcast. At TMST, we're passionate about having conversations that bring us together and help us stoke our love of life. That's why we created a dedicated site for the show. It's free. It's not a Facebook group, and we aren't mining your data to target you with ads. So check it out. And while you're there, please join TMST Plus, our paid membership group. TMST Plus members will play the critical role in keeping this going and ad-free. There are no corporations backing us. There's no advertisers. I mean, it's really up to us to pull together and make it happen. You can make a one-time contribution, or you can join our monthly program, where you can help shape the show, hear the complete unedited interviews, and join regular online experiences with Laura. But know this, you can make a huge difference right now for as little as $10 a month. You can find the link in the show description, and then please head over to tmstpod.com right now and join us. How did the four permissions come to be? Yeah. And I want to talk about what they are. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I'll, I'll kind of start distinguishing the four permissions as they showed up through this process. The, the end of 15, this company was so great, they gave us this paid sabbatical every five years of employment. So I was on my second sabbatical with my family. We always go out to Encinitas, California, which is where Autobiography of a Yogi was written. So my family can live extremely well while I'm meditating for many hours of the day, going to all the temple services. And I was doing this this uh, new, this New Year's Eve meditation from you know turning to New Year's 2016, so on New Year's Eve 2015. And it was a four-hour meditation that, that crossed the border from one year to the next. And it was really profound. And I remember at some point during this meditation, I started getting, you know, kind of this fervor going of just pleading with God, pleading with Guru. I needed reconciliation on this career. Like, I felt like my head was going to split. You know, I was tormented by the mm. idea of having to go back and work this effing job one more minute when I had so much to share with the world. I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I was praying deeply for reconciliation, you know? And Yogananda teaches when you pray with, with tears and pleading with the divine mother, she has no choice but to listen to her naughty little child and to like give you an answer. So, uh, I'm walking out of the temple 
And there's always a mountain of fruit in front of the guru's picture that people bring in with us to like give blessing while the meditation's going on. So, so you break your fast after this four-hour meditation. So I'm grabbing a banana and some apples for my walk home. I get this very clear voice in my head, prepare yourself, reconciliation is coming. <laughs> What? I, and it was, Damn. it was unmistakable. It was unmistakable. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, right. Right. Holy shit. I was like, I, and I walked home. <laughs> What'd you do? I got launched and it was the perfect launch because I got severance pay instead of leaving on my own. Got this three month kind of runway. And we had sold our house at the time. So I used the proceeds yeah. from the house to also kind of cushion this transition. And, you know, it unfolded yeah. beautifully. I mean, ever since then, it has been, you know, I believe God and Guru dropping the perfect client at the perfect time, the perfect event to MC, the perfect speaking gig or whatever. And so, you know, yeah. to answer your questions about the permissions, the four permissions were starting to distinguish themselves. You know, early on in my career, what I shared was the permission to chill. That's permission one, the need to meditate, to, to get past the excuses and to practice being with what is, to hit the pause button and to see things mm. as they are. I mean, you could call that sobriety. You could call that the process of meditation. You could call that discernment, but just making the time. What I'm most curious about, and then I'll ask specific questions about some of them, is how they came to be in your process and then when you actually started to name them. Yeah. I started naming the permissions. I, I do everything in a linear order, but the, the first permission I distinguished was permission to glow in the dark. And that was ah. how I interpreted it early on. This is probably like early 2015. I was like, what is this thing, this audacity thing? And people would always compliment me on it. Like, wow, you just, you're like, sorry, not sorry, permission to be you in any environment. You know, you're the same guy at home as you are at work, as you are teaching meditation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought that that's what permission to glow in the dark was. So I started using that language and, and I called it like full self-expression with witnesses, but not until later when I was writing the book, did I realize that it, it was only half the equation that I had to go deep into what the darkness meant. And it was, yeah. you know, self-expression despite or because of the ever-present fear that we all have, you know? <laughs> Um, yes. Yeah. So, so that was like probably the first time I started using that. And, and by that point, I had already been teaching a lot of meditations. I had started leading some of Jonathan's Good Life Project uh, retreats in Costa Rica as a meditation teacher, leading meditation at Camp Good Life Project for hundreds and hundreds of people. And so my, mm -hmm. my practice was kind of making a teacher out of me before I was even ready to call myself that. And, yeah. and so I, I started calling that jokingly permission to chill because I think we all kind of need it, you know, and not many of us are willing to give it to ourselves. So the chill part, what do you mean by chill? Well, I mean by chill, you know, it's the, the defiant act in a very fast paced, distracting world that is always hooking our attention. The defiant act of hitting the pause button and just stopping and looking at things as they are. So that's, you know, permission to be still, permission to meditate, mm -hmm. Permission to just stop the crazy train of thoughts for a few minutes each day, just to notice it, to build the muscle of your meta attention. That's what I mean, mm -hmm. chill. And the, and the more you commit yourself to that practice, the more that benefit shows up for you. You become more chill. You bring more peace into your relationships. You bring more peace into your pursuit of your goals. 
So permission to chill. I want you to go through the rest of the three. Where, where I left off in, in kind of my career path was that I needed permission to chill to even be able to see the opportunity when the door was opened up to me. And permission to feel all the feels is the second permission. And I call this the willingness to be with what wells up in our heart to guide us. And it's tricky for us achiever types because we've learned how to put on our game face or this mask that protects us from you know, being emotionally vulnerable or even acknowledging our humanity. We want to beat on our humanity like some crappy little horse jockey versus celebrate it for the beauty that it is. That is you know, at the core of permission to feel the feels. And when I dove deeper into that in the book, it turned out that you know, these feelings point to root emotions. And I believe these root emotions that show up in our body, usually they're embedded there from past traumas. Or sometimes if we're blessed, yeah. they're, they're embedded there from past you know, high achievements or peak states. But when we listen to what those yep. emotions are pointing to, that is the the true wisdom of our body, and I, I think that that's that's also a gift from God that we can tune into that and 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 tap into that as intuition. This is something I had to really learn and still learn all the time. As we, as a society, operate primarily in our heads, when you realize that your emotions are a language in and of themselves, that they are a language that informs you and that your heart is a language that informs you and it can be the body is in my experience much more useful well they work together the mind is beautiful and useful but it doesn't you can't get to the same places in the same way with grace and and those types of things as you can when you drop into the body and you use the body i mean i think writing is an is a great example of that an experience of that where you can do all kinds of great writing with your head. I don't think you create with your head. I don't think you, yeah. I don't think that's where, for example, you think you conceptualize something like the four permissions, right? Oh, it's, a, it's such an important part of the conversation. I use this in conscious leadership all the time with, with, with executives is that their body is data. And if they're able to, to clear mm. the space through the first permission to chill, and then they're able to listen to and act on permission to feel the feels, then the third permission is activated. And that's when our glow shows up. That's when a full expression, when, when some sort of higher vocation in our work gets activated. You coach some very high achieving C-level executive folks. Like yeah. give an example about how, how permission to glow, which is something I can imagine not, <laughs> isn't always easy for a C-level person to, uh, yeah. You know, they're not going to sit there and go, I'm sorry, I'm glowing right now in their board Shit. meeting. Oh, totally. But yeah. how do you get them to adopt it? And how does it show up? Like if you can give an example. Well, uh, okay. So we're at the precipice of like my biggest vulnerability hangover in my career because they're, I, I'm with this book, I'm letting them behind the curtain of what w- all the levers I have been pulling for years. <laughs> so like we, we, sometimes we use yeah. this language and a lot of times we don't because they don't, they're not in that conversation, you know, corporate people generally aren't in a spiritual conversation. Uh, many of them are willing to be in one, but HR teams that hire me, you know, don't want that language necessarily. So we call meditation mindfulness or whatever. But to, but to answer your question, where where I think glowing shows up is when they become a fully embodied leader. When 
you know, and, and I think this is an important conversation as it relates to organizational leaders and also for all of us because we are all leaders in our own lives. Like the buck does stop with us when we're right. creating anything, right? So whether or not you call yourself right. a leader, you kind of are one. <laughs> and uh, But with your question was about organizational leaders and these types, when they get into these moments of transcendent moments of leadership, this is when they're able to make, you know, the hard decisions. And sometimes these are, you know, tragic. I mean, like last year during the pandemic, these show up as, you know, mass layoffs or, you know, letting go of a workforce because they, they don't have any other option if they're going to hold on to their business. But in those moments when they authentically communicate with their people when they love them on their way out as they did on the way in, when they are fully embodied, mm-hmm. even in that darkest moment, something transcendent happens and that's where the glow shows up. So I don't want to limit it to only when they do these, you know, feats of miracles and, you know, acquire the company or get the $50 million fundraising round or whatever, all that stuff happens too. But the stuff that really impresses me is, is how they navigate it when they're in, in the thick of it. I do believe everyone's a leader. You're a leader in your home. You're a leader in your community. Whatever it is, we all, we all have that sure. have that capacity to show up that way. So then, the last yeah, this one. this was the hardest piece to put together of the puzzle, and and numerous numerous drafts. I, I can't even count during the book where my editor would come back and say, well, you have two of the four permissions. Oh, you have three of the four permissions. So, so the writing process for the book was literally a lot of meditation and a lot of rewrites to really perceive and distinguish the permissions, and particularly this fourth one. The, the fourth permission is permission to glow in the light. And this, mm. the seed was planted by my friend who was once my biggest hero on earth, Ani DeFranco. Ani DeFranco is a <laughs> songwriting activist, you know, will probably go down in history as one of the preeminent feminists of, of her generation. For sure. You Right. Yeah. And, and then there's the volume of songs and incredible poetry and artistry of her as a musician. I mean, she's a phenomenal soul. But she, yes. she when I was interviewing her for my podcast, she... she planted the seed of, you know, what does it mean to be a beacon and to just glow in the light? You know, when you're, when you're so past the darkness, what does that look like? And so I always perceived that as, well, that means transcending competition for cooperation. That means figuring out ways to love one another bravely enough to uplift the entirety of our human family. Like, would we even have the bravery and, and audacity to transcend all of our little you know, personal needs of those first three permissions. The fourth permission is the permission of those, uh, for those people who have done the work of the earlier three, who are willing to lay down all comparison, lay down all, you know, leave behind all scarcity and to move forward for the upliftment of humanity. And I know that can sound very utopian. However, if you look at scripture, if you look at what God or our creator might be asking of us, I think it has something to do with that. Mm-hmm. Maybe get along with one another. And COVID was the, the best lesson for this. You might want to think of others before you think of yourself just once in a while. I mean, it's it's a radical yeah. concept, but we can we can save lives if we do it. And so so yeah, permission to glow in the light is is about the collective. I love it. How awesome that that came from her. I mean, it was it, did you have the sense that that it wasn't complete? Yeah, always. And 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 all these things are constantly 
moving towards some level of completion that may or may not happen in my lifetime. I mean, just last week I committed to my publisher to write four more books, one for each permission. So like, you know, but I know, I know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. So yeah, the permit, I mean, it, it does, it does sound utopian, but it's not, you know, that, that is where the yogic concept of dharma yes. points. If we are here to play a role, if we are all here to play a role, which I believe that we are, we have that, that is the yogic concept of dharma, which I is how I teach it, is yes. it, then it's not f- just for you, right? You have to go through the transformation process yourself. The thing that you just said, I want to underline, like triple underline it, is that All of us have some dream or something we feel like we're here to accomplish, but when you connect that to the universal good or ask yourself, what is this in service of beyond me, that gives that thing an accelerating power because... That is what mm. the creator intended, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, it shows up as Dharma and in, in yoga and in Buddhism, it shows up in, you know, Seva yoga, ser- you know, service to all. I mean, all true religions have this act, mm-hmm. you know, these aspects of service, you know, certainly Catholicism, Christianity. I mean, and we, we have to consider others that, you know, and that's, you know, going back, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I was tuning into when I thought, you know, personal development is about the person. Spiritual development is about the collective. It's preparing you to be in service. I see. Yeah. 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 And it's almost just a natural extension. It's not It's not like there's this point where you go, okay, I'm complete. Now I'm going to hand it over to the world. The reason I love this part of it is because a lot of times with what I teach, I will hear people say, isn't this such a privileged thing to worry about is what I, you know, what I myself and what I'm supposed to do and what I'm supposed to become. And like, am I just supposed to, you know, it feels like this selfish, a lot of, I hear a lot of, especially women say this feels like just selfish sort of navel gazing stuff. And my response to that is like, no, this is, you are responsible for doing this. This is your primary responsibility in the world is to become who you are because this is the role you play and this is how you give, the, giving it away is your responsibility. And yeah, damn, it's, yes, it's a privilege. If you can do this, you fucking better, right? Oh, if you have the privilege to be having this conversation, you fucking better do it. Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, this is a perfect example. You give these people permission to glow in the dark, you know, by, by being willing to be in your own process, you pay that forward in service of them and their families who then pay it forward in service to the greater mm-hmm. good, you know, choose, should they choose to call it that, you know, yo, one of Yogananda's quotes comes to mind that I, I use this at the end of my Ted talk when I talked about, I, I shared my, my gut churning last day of drinking and I knew I needed to share it because it was so awkward and painful, but, but I, I followed it with this quote, which is, it's just so simple, but it's so important. And it, and it kind of summarizes what you said was he said, one who is reformed themselves will reform thousands. And mm. if we choose, yep. if we choose to transform ourselves, we will give people the permission to get on their own path of doing so. We will light the way we will show them it's possible. And, 
more than anything else in my work of being a coach or being a dad is that I'm trying to show my kids that you are worth working on yourself. You are worth trying to show your your highest and best or your essence versus just give everybody your survival mechanisms all the time. So when when does the book come out? The book comes out for pre-order September 7th. It's published on October 5th. But for me, a first-time author, self-publishing, the way I'm doing it, pre-orders are kind of everything. So that's what we've been kind of gearing towards. So I'm doing a book tour during the pre-order date. I hope everybody buys it. Even if you don't consider yourself a leader at work, it really is for for everything. I almost wish it wasn't a, a leadership, a business leadership book, but... Ani had to read it last week to give me a, you know, a blurb. So Ani DeFranco reads it. She's a yeah. childhood hero. I'm like, what if she thinks it sucks? Like she's not a corporate leader. She's going to like, I was mortified. Like I was, I was inadvertently being a dick to everybody in my life because I was like working. I was waiting for her verdict on my work. You know what I mean? You're, you're total hero yeah. on earth reading your shit. I was like, no way. So, uh, she comes back and she's like, this is a deeply feminist manifesto. This book is far more than it seems is what she said about it and she's like and what's what we're putting on the cover is her quote it says this book will teach some of us how to lead it'll teach all of us how to live and i was like are you frick (laughs) i'm like what do i even do with that i'm like i'm like i just work here at this point i'm like yeah cool i'll i'll pass it along to the editor it's crazy yeah, but I mean, you could imagine how triggering all that stuff is. Like even, you know, being with you, working with you, working mm-hmm. with my heroes, standing shoulder to shoulder with people you really respect, it's supposed to be triggering, you know? And and there's such a mm. a joy in in looking, you know, looking around and thinking like, wow, this is this is my job now. It's it's beautiful. I know. I, I have that feeling often. I really do. Yeah, like are we at work right now, Laura? All are right. we I'm what, in what is it. I don't know what's happening right now. Yeah, this is, I I am technically at work right now. So are you. Welcome to your life. Thank you so much. Oh gosh, thanks for your time and generosity. Like, thanks for like getting all the journey in there. It was super fun. Thank you for hanging out with us today. We want every episode of Tell Me Something True to give you something you can use in your life. We also don't want there to be any barriers between us. That's why we built our own online community. It's free, it's not Facebook. And you can head on over to tmstpod.com to connect with folks around this episode. Also, have you noticed there aren't any ads on TMST? That's by design. We want to keep the show and our digital spaces ad-free, but that's a goal we can only accomplish if we work together. And that's where you can make a huge difference. TMST is being built as an ad-free, subscriber-driven project. The subscribing members will play the critical role in keeping this going and keeping it ad-free. There are no corporations backing us, no sponsors, so it's really up to us. And the good news is folks are signing up. Thank you so much to all of you who have come on board for this very unusual way to do things. You can join them when you make a one-time contribution or join our monthly program. We have cool opportunities for you to help shape the show, hear the complete unedited interviews, ask our guests questions before they're on, 
and connect with other TMST folks. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $10 a month. So head on over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time at Tell Me Something True.